Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, good evening, and it is uh, good to see all of you here tonight. We will be in Mark chapter 7 tonight, beginning with verse 24 and going through verse 37. And it is good to be back with you all. Had a wonderful summer. Got a chance to go to Romania uh, and minister there in a place where we as a church have been sending folks for quite some time now. And saw what God is doing in a communist, former communist country as far as extending the gospel and preparing men to lead churches. And that was a, a great blessing. Uh, we just finished the largest, uh, most successful year at the seminary in our history with almost, well, exactly 2,800 students. Uh, to put that in perspective, in 1992, when I came to Southeastern the first time, we had 586 students and people were predicting the death of the seminary. And uh, by God's amazing grace, the school has steadily grown so that we actually jumped almost 150 students from last year to this year. And then this fall, we've had a larger incoming class than last fall. And uh, the last two days, our chapel has been packed, and there are students everywhere. And um, one of the things I'm figuring out, though, they, they keep getting younger. I mean, I swear, I think we're allowing junior high kids into the seminary now, and they, they look so very, very, very young. But I suspect that the uh, issue is not that they're younger, but that some of us are older. But uh, I do have to tell you this. Um, they're younger, and I think perhaps more foolish. Um, Monday night... The fire department of Wake Forest was called to the men's dorm because two of our single students, and I guess their teens, uh, he had brought a fog machine and a strobe light with him to seminary. Now, why you would bring a fog machine and a strobe light to seminary, I'm still trying to, you know, figure that out. And then they turned the thing on in their room with the strobe light and they were dancing around, uh, which two guys dancing, I'm still trying to deal with that. And... Um, and uh, the alarm goes off. And so the Wake Forest uh, Fire Department is showing up at our uh, Goldston dorm at midnight because two students had a fog machine going in their room with their strobe light. And so, I, you know, we're just still trying to process that. You know, I, I'm seldom surprised by anything, but that surprised me. That, that one even caught me off guard. And so it's not dull. That much I can tell you, it is not dull around the seminary. But the Lord is blessing. We're having such a great time could not do it without your prayers and support. And so uh, thank you so much for loving on the school and loving on the students uh, as this church does in such a tremendous way. Mark chapter 7, verse 24 through the end of the chapter, verse 37. Jesus Christ, I take it right from the text, the God who astonishes beyond measure. Look at verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. 
And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee into the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And he looked up to heaven, he sighed, and he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I would note in this text two great statements back up in verse 24. He could not be hidden. And here again in verse 37, he has done all things well. I'm often want to say at the seminary to our students that the greatest missionary who ever lived was the Lord Jesus Christ. He was also the greatest theologian who ever lived. And I think the argument is easily made. He came the greatest distance from heaven to earth to redeem us and to save us, to bring the good news of salvation. And he also made the greatest sacrifice, giving his life in the place of sinners, bearing in his body the wrath of God, that God's wrath might be turned away from us. And yet, in spite of the fact that while he was here on earth, he had no jet planes to carry him anywhere, he had no trains, he had no cars to speed him across various countries, he still, in his three years' ministry, found time to make his way into foreign soil and to minister specifically among Gentiles to give us what I like to call a glimpse of Great Commission Christianity. In other words, even though he had to walk where he went, He still left the confines of Israel. He went north into Phoenicia, and he spent time there sharing the gospel and ministering among Gentiles, demonstrating to us that the gospel is not simply for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. To put in our context, the gospel is not only for Americans, it is indeed for the whole world. In other words, God's kingdom knows no ethical, uh, no racial, no national, and no gender barriers. And indeed, all who come to him in salvation will discover that the one who could not be hid there in verse 24 and the one who does all things well in verse 37 will receive them as well if they come to him like this woman in faith. Basically, the end of chapter 7 packages for us two miracles. One, the healing of a demon-possessed little girl, and the other, the healing of a man that could not hear and also had a speech impediment. Both of the miracles are intended to show us that God's kingdom has come and come in power, and that indeed Jesus Christ is God's man for everyone. Uh, Contrary to the religious bigots of the day, and Israel was filled with religious bigots, No one is so unclean that he cannot touch them and make them whole. No one is so far from the kingdom that they cannot enter into the kingdom when they come by the way of Jesus Christ. And so in this text, we're going to see once more the glory of God. He astonishes people beyond measure. But we also see the goodness of God even to those that in that day were considered unreachable, untouchable, unworthy, and without any hope. So the first thing we see in the first story is simply this. Jesus is the Savior who cannot be hidden. 
Verse 24, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and, note the next phrase, he did not want anyone to know. Uh, our Lord trusted his father. He, he lived like we live by faith. And he recognized that the father had mapped out his life from the beginning to the very end. And he knew also that this ministry and this life that his father had given him, like our lives, well, would have good days and bad days. There would be times of wonderful happiness and joy, but there would also be times of trial and opposition, pressure and even disappointment. In the context of these particular verses, Jesus has just finished a major conflict with the Pharisees. We have seen a confrontation of the gospel versus religion. One saves and one kills. One gives life and one brings death. And so he has engaged them once more, and I suspect that he was fatigued. I think he perhaps was exasperated, and he just needed to get away for a little while. Furthermore, we see the hostility building throughout the gospel. We know it's going to culminate in his death and crucifixion. And so I think he probably recognized that there needs to be a break. Uh, there needs to be a time lapse because things are moving very rapidly in a particular direction. But he will not go to Calvary. And he will not be crucified until exactly the appointed time given to him by his father. So he gets away, I think, first from his enemies. I think, secondly, he is going up into this region to have some teaching time with his disciples. I think, thirdly, he wants to get a little R&R. And in the midst of all of that, we're also going to see something about the heart of God as he reaches out and loves on and ministers to the Gentiles. And so what do we see there in verse 24? Jesus cares for the nations, and so should we. He arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. In that day, it was the district of Phoenicia. It is to the northeast of Israel. Today, it's modern Lebanon. So think of modern Lebanon, and that's where he had gone. Leaving the Capernaum area, he went north. He went to the east to the sea there, the Mediterranean. About 20 miles northwest of Capernaum is where he was. And he goes away, as the text says, to get away. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know. However, his appearance is, uh, his, his presence is immediately uh, found out and people begin to gossip about it. And as the text says again, he could not be hidden. Now, we need to remember that back in chapter 3, verse 8, a delegation from Tyre and Sidon had come down into Israel to watch and to hear and to expose themselves to this miracle worker. And so we should not be surprised that once he makes his way up into this region, uh, they know who he is. Uh, they've heard about him. Some perhaps have even seen him and have seen him do the miracles that he had done. And so they are very much aware of the fact that the Galilean miracle worker has come in our midst. Furthermore, I think the phrase, he could not be hidden, is put there by Mark just as an indication that God's Son, in all of his goodness and all of his greatness and all of his glory, I don't care where you place him, he cannot be hidden. So Jesus goes there. Uh, he wants to get away from his enemies. Uh, he wants to have some teaching time with his disciples. He wants to get a little rest and relaxation. But also, I don't think it's missiologically insignificant that when he decides to get away, he goes into Gentile territory. As best we can tell, this is the only time Jesus ever left the borders of Israel. The only time. 
And yet it is a indication to us that not only did he care for the nation of Israel, as we'll see, made very evident in just a moment, but he also cared for the Gentiles as well. But that he went to Tyre and Sidon, uh, that in of itself is really quite uh, remarkable. Uh, they had a long history of opposition uh, to the nation of Israel. One thing in particular stands out in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 31 and 32, we discover that this was the hometown of Jezebel. And so needless to say, there was nothing good about this particular region. There was nothing good about this particular city. There was nothing good about the relationship that they had had with Israel for many, many centuries. James Edwards says, and I quote, Tyre probably represented the most extreme expression of paganism, both actually and symbolically, that a Jew could expect to encounter. And yet Jesus goes into the heart of pagan territory to minister and to indeed extend the reach of the Messiah to a degree and to an extent that Israel could never have imagined. In fact, if I were to summarize for you tonight what I think Israel was like in this particular day, they still suffered from what I call the Jonah complex. They were racist. They were bigots. They were religious elitist. They could not imagine that God would care one whit about people outside of Israel. And certainly, if they even had a little bit broader perspective than that, he certainly would not care for the kind of people that you would find in ancient Phoenicia. He would not care for the kind of people that you find in Tyre and in Sidon. Again, Edward says, and I quote, from a socio-religious perspective, Jesus' visit to Tyre universalizes the concept of Messiah in terms of geography, ethnicity, gender, and religion in a way unprecedented in Judaism. In other words, just by his going to Tyre and Sidon, he is helping us understand that he is not the Savior just for one nation. He is the Savior of all nations, and we should be as well. I'm appreciative. Uh, it bothers me, but I'm appreciative every Wednesday night. We go to the Joshua uh, Project webpage, and we have before us an unreached people group. In fact, I get their email every day in the morning when I get up and I go to my computer. One of the first things that's always there is the daily people group that we pray for uh, that is unreached. And sometimes it's a group as small as 18,000, and sometimes it's an unreached people group as large as 18-plus million where there's virtually no Christianity present in their midst. I can assure you of this. If our Lord were walking on this earth, he would be concerned about them and he would find a way to get to them. He cares for all the nations and so should we. But secondly, he also cares for the Jews and so should we. As we noted, word gets out quickly that Jesus is in the house and a most unlikely individual shows up asking for his help. The, the text says in verse 25, but there's Mark's favorite word, immediately a woman whose little daughter had a, an unclean spirit, she's demon possessed, heard of him. She came and note she fell down at his feet. Now, Mark at this point goes to some length to paint for us a portrait of this woman, and it is not pretty. He says, first of all, she is a woman as opposed to a man. 
Secondly, she is a Gentile as opposed to a Jew. And to make it worse, she is of Syrophoenician birth. That is her heritage. So she is grounded in this history of paganism and idolatry and false religion. Furthermore, if you read the parallel account in uh, Matthew chapter 15 and verse 22, he even goes so far as to say she's a Canaanite woman. So she's a woman, she's a Gentile, she's a Syrophoenician, she's a Canaanite. And she's got a demon-possessed child. Wonder whose fault that is. So you could not have had an un, a more unlikely individual. In other words, Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12, the blessing of being a part of what he calls the commonwealth of Israel. Well, let me assure you, no one was further from the commonwealth of Israel than this woman. Furthermore... She does something that is totally unacceptable according to the social customs of that day by coming to Jesus. You would never, a woman would never approach a Jewish rabbi in this kind of a way. And yet she does with great courage and with great boldness. And the text says she not just begged, the, the tense of the verb is she kept on begging. In other words, when she says there in verse uh, uh, 26, she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. She didn't ask once. She didn't ask twice. She didn't ask three times. She kept on asking. She was persistent. In fact, we learn from Matthew's account that the disciples tried to send her away. Asked Jesus to send her away, and she wasn't going. She wasn't moving. And so she stayed there at his feet, and she kept own begging. In other words, she comes boldly. She also comes humbly. She fell down at his feet. She was bold. She was humble. And she was persistent. Then we read in verse 27 what some people consider to be the most shocking words in all the Bible coming from the lips of Jesus. With our uh, Western 21st century ears, we immediately hear this and we're like, he didn't say that. He didn't say that. There's no way that Jesus said what it says he said there in verse 27. Let the children, he said to her, be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow. If that doesn't sound like a massive insult, I don't know what does. And we do know from our study of the Jewish world at this time that they often referred to uh, Gentiles as dogs. And by dogs, they didn't mean a pet uh, that slept at your feet or a pet that put its head in your lap or a pet that climbed up on your bed and slept with you at night. Now, they're not talking about a household uh, pet. They're talking about street scavengers. They're talking about dirty, unclean scavengers, unworthy and incapable of salvation. That's what the Jews meant when they called a Gentile a dog. So now the $10 million question, is that what Jesus means? Well, I think we already intuitively know the answer is no. And if we'll just dig a little deeper in the text, we'll find out very clearly that's not what he meant at all. First of all, the very words of Jesus are something of a, of a parable. 
They're not a, a direct statement. Sort of like a, a pithy saying that was somewhat popular in that particular day. Well, let the dogs be fed first. For it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So it almost has, even in English, sort of a, a riddle or a parabolic kind of statement. Second, and this is one of the reasons that the students are wise to go and study Greek with someone like Dr. Lanier, you'll discover in the Greek text that the word for dog here actually is a word that can be translated puppy. In other words, the Greek language has a word very similar for dog. We have the word dog and puppy. Uh, they have the word dog and puppy, very similar, but he uses the word in a diminutive form, form. So it's very clear he's not talking about the street scavenger, but he is talking about the, the household pet. So he uses the word, uh, don't, uh, uh, you don't feed the little puppies before you feed the children. Third, there's a crucial word that you must not neglect in what Jesus said. Let the children be fed, and what's the next word? First. Let the children be fed first. Now, why did he say that? Well, I believe, first of all, he was testing the woman's faith by saying, well, I first have to minister to the, to the nation of Israel, and then I can... Minister to the Gentiles, are you willing to be patient? Are you willing to be persistent? Are you willing to wait? Furthermore, we know from other places in the Bible that the mission to the Jews had a chronological priority. In Matthew, it's very clear where Jesus says, I've come first to save and to preach to the house of Israel. Furthermore, I've noted in your notes, uh, Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, where Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. In other words, our Lord is indicating on a number of levels his great love and his great devotion for the Jewish people. In fact, we know from Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37 that shortly before he was crucified, he went up on the Mount of Olives and he wept bitterly over the city and the nation. He grieved over the fact that though he had come to them, wanted to bring them to himself like a mother hen does her chicks, they would not repent. And yet in spite of her unbelief, I believe that God still loves the Jewish people. I think God still cares for the Jewish people. I, I often say, and I believe the Bible is clear here, God is not through with the Jew. Indeed, I think what we read in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 29, are a beautiful expression of the heart of our God and the heart of the Lord Jesus. Just listen as I read this wonderful text, Romans 11:25. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial, not a complete, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until when? The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, now hear this next statement. All Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. And this is one of the great statements in all the Bible. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, did God make a lasting covenant with Abraham? He certainly did. 
Did he make a lasting covenant with David? He certainly did. Did he make a lasting covenant with the nation of Israel and the house of Judah? According to Jeremiah chapter 31 and Ezekiel chapter 36, he certainly did. And so even in this text, we are again reminded that our God does have a great care and great love for the nations, but he also has great care and love for the Jews, and so should we. You know, wonderfully, most evangelicals do have a great love for the Jewish people. Uh, we are not Zionists, although a few of my friends may be, and they need to correct that. It's not Israel right, no matter what. If they do something wrong, uh, we should correct them. If they do something foolish, we should call them out. But the fact of the matter is, we should love them. We should evangelize them. We should care for them. And uh, anti-Semitism is just another form of racism and bigotry that has no place in the heart and the life of a Christian person. And yet, to my amazement, sometimes when I talk with people who claim to follow Christ and love Christ, and you bring up the Jewish people, it's amazing the kind of visceral reaction you get in a very negative kind of a way. I can still remember when I was in graduate school at the University of Texas at Arlington, I uh, had a young lady. Well, actually, she wasn't a young lady. She was older than me. Her husband was a doctor. Uh, she was young in comparison to how old I am now. But then she was older than I was then. Anyway, she, uh, she came into the library one day, and she sat down beside me on the couch, and she said, can I, can I ask you something? And I said, well, sure you can. She said, you're strange. And I said, well, I appreciate that. And she immediately called herself, turned red in the face. I didn't mean it like that. I said, well, that's all right. She said, well, no. Um, I've watched you and some of your friends, and it's very clear that you have a love for the Jewish people. And I said, well, that's easily explained. My, my Lord uh, is a Jew. And uh, I believe that God still has a wonderful plan for the Jewish people. And she said, well, you sound like Paul. And like a doofus, I said, Paul who? And she said, Paul, the apostle, to which I then said, oh, you, you've read him. And she said, I've read through the New Testament several times. And I said, well, then you know where I'm coming from. But then she said, but Christians were responsible for the Holocaust. And I said, well, I, I wouldn't agree with that. She said, well, Italy threw their lot in with, uh, with Hitler. And they were a Catholic nation. And the Pope... And they, you're right, initially was supportive of the Third Reich. And she said, Germany was a Christian nation. I said, well, you know, uh, just because I'm standing in a garage doesn't make me a car. And just because someone says they're a Christian doesn't make them a Christian. I said, to be honest with you, I think Hitler was demon-possessed. I think Mussolini was demon-possessed. And the Third Reich was demonically and satanically moved and controlled. And I said, if you want to find what I think a Christian is, then you need to look at someone like Corey Ten Boom and see what she did during that horrific time. And there you see a Christian doing what a Christian does. No Christian would ever condemn six million people to gas chambers. No Christian could have that kind of hatred in their heart and at the same time, know genuinely the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, no, we recognize today. So let me go on, though. Our problem today for us, though, for many of us, it's not the Jews. That's not our problem. Our problem is the Muslims. 9-11 is coming up. be on Sunday. It'll be very fascinating to watch what happens in a lot of our churches. You say, oh, uh, no, I think Christians are fine with Muslims. Well, ask my two sons who spent 
two years each on the mission field working among Muslims and then listen to what they hear with their antennas up and their ears sensitive when they've come back. I mean, they both have said to me, I, I, I've been really disturbed at what I hear among those who profess to be Bible believers about their hard attitude toward Muslims. They've heard Christian people say it would be good if we just went and nuked them all. Just killed them all. Just wiped them all out. But that's what they deserve. Now, do we really want to go down that road? I mean, do we really tonight want to go down the road of what we all deserve? I don't think so. I think we want to be recipients not of what we deserve, but of God's amazing grace. And that's what they need as well. So Jesus cares for the Jews. And you know what? He cares for the Muslims, too. And so should we. But then thirdly, we also see in this first story that Jesus cares for the individual, and so should we. You know, it had been easy for this woman to walk away in bitter disappointment after what Jesus said there in verse 27. But no, she fires back with a burst of boldness. I love what Tim Keller says. This is just a great statement. I think I may have put it in your notes. There are cowards. There are regular people. There are heroes. And then there are parents. Parents are not really on the spectrum from cowardice to courage because if your child is in jeopardy, you simply do what it takes to save her. You don't think twice. You do what it takes. And so with wit, courage, faith, the woman responds there in verse 28, and she answered him, Yes, Lord. Don't miss that. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. You notice that she was not offended by what Jesus said, which I think gives evidence that when he said the dogs get the crumb, you know, it's not right to feed the dogs first. Uh, She didn't take it that he was calling her a street scavenger. She understood that he was comparing her to a, a puppy under the table of the nation of Israel that had received the commonwealth and the blessings, the covenants of God. And so she's not she's not offended by that at all. In fact, what she does is she takes his analogy And she carries it further to another step. Yes, Lord, I am a dog. I'm nothing. I have nothing. I bring nothing. I have no right at the family, at the at the Jewish table. But even the dogs under the table get to eat the children's crumbs. Wow. What insight. What humility. What faith. Now, this is one time where I wish Mark had been a little bit more um, demonstrative and, and explanatory, because all he says is Jesus responded for this statement. You may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Mr. Matter of fact, Mark. However, if you look at the cross reference in Matthew chapter 15, verse 28, listen to what it says. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith, be it done For you as you desire. And that word great in the Matthew text, we get our word mega from it. So if you'd like to, we could say, and Jesus responded, O woman, mega is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And so Mark, in simplicity again in verse 30, simply says, She went and she found the child lying in bed and the demon was gone. You know, this really is a magnificent picture of salvation in this story. I mean, the fact of the matter is, if we would be honest this evening, all of us are dogs under the table. That's right. You're a dog. I'm a dog. 
under the table, no right to be at the table. We're not a member of the family uh, by natural birth. No, 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 no. And so for you to get into that family, you've got to acknowledge you don't deserve a place at the table. But yet you must also believe there's enough on the table for you when it falls off the table. I know I don't deserve it, but I certainly need it. And in fact, just a few crumbs are enough to lift me up from the floor and put me in a chair. And now I'm no longer a dog. I'm a child. I'm no longer a pet. I'm a member of the family of God. But you've got to recognize first that you are a sinner, that you are a dog before you can become a child and be saved. You've got to recognize that you rightly are under the table before you can then be allowed to sit at the table. And so this is a beautiful picture of salvation. We all have to acknowledge Do we not that we're sinners, that we're dogs before we can become children and saved and welcome at the table? All of that and more is found in this first miracle story of Jesus, the Savior, who cannot be hidden. But now, secondly, Jesus is also the Savior who does all things well. This is verse 31 through verse 37. Uh, The miracle we now encounter is found only in Mark's gospel. There is a parallel account in Matthew chapter 15, verse 29 through 31. But there the text says many came to him and he healed them all. Uh, Evidently, Mark takes this one story out of many stories and inserts it at this particular point. I I don't know why for sure, but it could be that Peter, uh, the eyewitness behind Mark's gospel, was especially drawn to this story. You know, some have even speculated that he saw a physical parallel an illustration of his own uh, spiritual experience. In other words, there was a time in his life where he didn't hear the Word of God very well. Uh, There was a time in his life where he didn't speak very well. That's an understatement for Peter. And yet now, because of amazing grace, he both hears and speaks and understands perfectly through the ministry of the Spirit. So it may be that, uh, you know, that's why he uh, picked up this particular story out of a number of stories that Matthew just very generally says took place. But now he says specifically this one took place. Now, here's what's interesting. Look at verse 31. He returned then from the region of Tyre and he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Now, I read a significant number of commentaries on this passage, and they were just wigging out over this. Because what Jesus does is, as I say in your notes, he makes a big horseshoe run. He goes from Tyre up to Sidon, then he goes northeast, and then comes back down on the east side of the Sea of Galilee to the Decapolis. In other words, when everything is said and done, he walked about 120 miles. When he simply could have just cut across and then down and saved himself 60, 70, my goodness, probably 80 miles. And so people have wondered, why in the world did he do this? Well, some have said, you know, he was still trying to evade the Herodians and the Pharisees. Perhaps they were after him like posses. And so he's like Butch Cassidy, the Sundance kid, and he's moving on, trying to stay out of their way. Uh, Others have said, you know, no. It's a further extension of his ministry to the Gentiles. And it also extends the period of time that he has to teach the disciples. I can't be certain, but I tend to think it was intentionally an extension of his ministry to the Gentiles. I wish I knew what he did when he went up to Tyre and Sidon and then hooked across and came back down. But he doesn't tell us. All he says is he he left Tyre. 
He went up to Sidon. He cut across to the Sea of Galilee, came back down on the uh, on the east side, the, actually the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee to the ten cities, that is to the Decapolis. And so why? We can't be sure. But this much we do know, it does allow him to continue to minister among the Gentiles, and in particular, this particular individual. Note two things, then, about this particular uh, paragraph and this particular miracle. First of all, Jesus does hear our cries for help. Mark says there in verse 31, he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was, number one, deaf. And number two, he had a speech impediment, which is a a good translation. The NIV says he was a man who could hardly talk. Now, some people have drawn the conclusion, I think it's reasonable, that he perhaps had not been deaf all of his life or had not been completely deaf all of his life because apparently he could talk somewhat. He could talk a little uh, but he could not talk very well. Now, maybe again, he had been completely deaf and somehow through signing, they had taught him uh, to speak a little bit. Bottom line is he's now completely deaf and bottom line is uh, he cannot hardly talk at all. Well, something very similar happened in this story as well. It says there in verse 32, they brought to him this man and they begged him to lay his hands on him. And the text says, again, they continually begged. They were persistent in begging. They didn't ask one time. They didn't ask two times. They kept on asking, kept on asking, kept on asking that Jesus would what? Lay his hand on him. Now, again, some have made note of that, that, that perhaps they weren't asking Jesus to heal him, simply to bless him. And that's certainly a possibility. Uh, although I tend to think that they were asking him to touch him to heal him because they knew that he was a healer. They knew his track record. And so I don't think they were asking simply for a blessing. I think they were expecting and hoping uh, for much more. And indeed, they do receive much more. Look at verse 33. Uh, Taking him aside from the crowd privately. Don't miss that. Uh, Jesus is very personal in his attention. Uh, He's very compassionate in his attention. I mean, I don't mean to uh, overstate the case and read into the text too much. But do you imagine that this uh, this deaf man who could hardly speak had perhaps been the object of some ridicule and people poking. I mean, can you imagine the teenage boys when they got around him? You think they treated him with respect? Think they were kind to him and gracious to him and understanding? Probably not. He'd probably been made a spectacle of uh, many, many times in his life. And so Jesus, in great love and compassion, takes him aside. He's very personal. He's very compassionate. And I love this. He enters the man's world using sign language that he could understand. He put his fingers in his ears, which would indicate I'm going to do something for your ears. And he spit, and which always freaked me out earlier, but if it were me, and you could spit on my tongue and help me speak, man, go for it. I mean, go right ahead. I can clean the, I can get my Listerine later, but go ahead and spit all you want. I'll be happy to receive it. So anyway, he puts fingers in his ears. I'm going to do something with your ears. Uh, after spitting, he touched his tongue. I'm going to do something with your tongue. And he looked up to heaven and he sighed and he said, Ephathah, that is, be open. I like what Sinclair Ferguson, the wonderful Presbyterian pastor in uh, Columbia, South Carolina, said. The man could not hear Jesus, and he was also incapable of verbal communication. So Jesus spoke to him in the language he could understand, sign language. The fingers placed in his ears and then removed meant, I'm going to remove the blockage in your hearing. 
The spitting and the touching of the man's tongue meant I am going to remove the blockage in your mouth. The glance up to heaven meant it is God alone who is able to do for you uh, what I'm about to do. Jesus wanted the man to understand that it was not magic, but God's grace that healed. And so he does look up to heaven. And first, the text says he sighed. We'll see later next week that he sighs again. This time he will sigh because of this man's uh, malady. I think he's sighing over the fact that creation has fallen and the fall has brought such sorrow and such pain and such hurt to so many people. I think he sighs because of great love and compassion for this particular man. There's great grief in his heart over his situation. Next week, we're going to see that he sighs over the unbelief of the Pharisees. It's the same word. But I suspect a much different emotion. Here, he's heartbroken. There, he will be angry. But in um, probably Aramaic, he says, Epitha, which means be open. And the text gives a very straightforward response in verse 35. His ears were opened. His tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. Now, again, this is one of the advantages of reading the original text because the Greek text is much more vivid and descriptive. In fact, literally, the Greek text says, and were opened his ears and immediately were loosened the bond or the chains of his tongue. In other words, like a prisoner bound in chains, Jesus broke the fetters of his captivity and he set him free. I love it. The bonds were loosened or broken of the chains of his tongue. So Jesus hears our cries for help, and then finally Jesus deserves our praise for all he does. Verse 36, Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, evidently he did it more than once, the more zealously they proclaimed it. I can only imagine the first words that this man spoke plainly. I'm sure that they were words of praise and adoration and thanksgiving for God. And so because he's so enthusiastically uh, rejoicing and those around him, Jesus, no, no, need to keep it quiet. Don't need to spread the news. The Pharisees are about. The Herodians are about. You're, you're, you're building the wrong understanding of the kind of Messiah I'm going to be. I'm not here to be a miracle-working Messiah primarily. I'm here to be a dying Messiah. And so things can't move ahead of the appointed time. But you know what? Though we cannot condone their disobedience, we can certainly understand it. I I seriously doubt I would have been any different had this miracle taken place with me. In fact, the message of Eugene Peterson paraphrases it this way. Jesus urged them to keep it quiet, but they talked it up all the more beside themselves with excitement. And I suspect that we, too, would have responded The same way. And so verse 37 brings it all to a wonderful conclusion. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, that's a very simple statement. But that verse has massive theological significance. He has done everything well, could literally be translated, He has done everything good. I know that's not good English grammar. But he is picking up, I promise you, he is picking up on the language of Genesis chapter 1. God did it and it was what? Good. And God did it and it was good. And God did it and it was good. And so, in essence, the creator is back on the scene. And God, as the creator, always does that which is good. He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. But that recalls words not from Genesis 1. We're from Isaiah chapter 35, and if you're a note taker, of course, I've already given it to you, but here's what the text says. Listen to it. 
Isaiah 35, verse 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. And so that simple statement brings together the great work of God as our creator and the great work of our God as our savior. And again, I like what James Edwards says on this as we move to close. The illusion of Genesis of Isaiah 35 is of supreme significance for Mark's presentation of Jesus. Not only because the restoration of speech signals the eschatological arrival of the day of the Lord, but also because the desert wastelands of Lebanon, Isaiah 35 verse 2, will receive the joy of God. The region of Tyre and Sidon are, of course, precisely the Lebanon of Isaiah 35. Jesus' healing in the Decapolis becomes the first fruits of the fulfillment of Isaiah 35.10, that Gentile Lebanon will join, quote, the ransom of the Lord and enter Zion with singing. Salvation thus comes to the Gentile world in Jesus, who is God's eschatological redeemer from Zion. As we have noted before, the only categories adequate for Mark to describe the person and work of Jesus are ultimately the categories of God. Once again, as in the story of the Syrophoenician woman, salvation is from the Jews. And furthermore, I didn't notice this until just last week as I was putting the final touches on this. You see in this last story something of a mini uh, picture of the what we call the grand redemptive storyline of the Bible. We, we teach our students to think theologically in terms of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. Well, what do we have here? Creation. He does all things well, good. Fall. A deaf man cannot uh, hear. He cannot speak because of sin. Redemption. The miracle of healing where he is restored and placed back in the way that God intended before sin entered the world. And through that restoration, now we know that God's kingdom has arrived. Charles Wesley, that great uh, hymn writer who was the brother John Wesley, and both of whom used along with Jonathan Edwards and others, George Whitfield, in the First Great Awakening, uh, wrote a song that we all know, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. I also think that perhaps a portion of that song was inspired by the story that we just uh, studied and by the Isaiah text. Uh, we look at this together as we close tonight. Stanzas 1, 4, and 5. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. Hear Him, ye deaf, His praise, ye dumb. Your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come, and leap, ye lame, for joy. Now, don't miss verse 5. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of Thy name. He is the God who cannot be hid. He is the Lord who does all things well. He is the God that we should take to the nations. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these two simple stories that have such profound truth in them. I thank you, Lord, for your love extended to unworthy Gentiles like the Syrophoenician woman, which means that you also include me in that unworthy group that can know you by coming to you in faith. And I thank you that you turn dogs into children. And you move us from under the table to the table as a part of your family. And then, Lord, this man that had suffered so much being uh, deaf and, and, and only partially able to speak, 
you come into his world and you get down on his level. You love him in a very intimate, personal way, touching his ears. I'm going to give you the ability to hear. Touching his tongue, I'm going to give you the ability to speak. All the fulfillment of the coming of Messiah as prophesied and promised in the great prophet Isaiah. But, Lord, all that was for the purpose to inform us that you have a heart not only for the Jewish people, you have a heart for the nations, and so should we. So may we indeed follow in the footsteps of the God who astonishes beyond measure, taking the gospel to the Jew, taking the gospel to the nations, and being faithful to proclaim his great gospel until he comes again. This we ask and pray, Heavenly Father, in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.